0: We now turn to scripture. We will read Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul earlier in this chapter speaks about the gospel He is called as an apostle to bring that gospel, and he is not ashamed of it. For, as he says, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then we continue to read at verse 18. because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, but also approve of those who practice them." And then we move on to the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, and our text for this afternoon is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the verses 1 through 12. You can find that on page 1360 of your pew Bible. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be too soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So far, the reading of the text. Following the ministry of the word, we will sing in response hymn 67, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, a while ago I had a conversation with a congregation member about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was reflecting on the worldwide impact of the COVID-19 virus and wondering if this was a sign of the imminent return of our Savior. More recently, if you have followed the news... You will have taken note of the social unrest precipitated by the death of George Floyd in the United States under the knee of a, a police officer on May 25th. The Black Lives Matter movement has seized on this. They've been doing more than just calling for justice. They've been calling for a radical change of the social order. Open dialogue about the nature of problems in society and what kind of solutions may be best are not being fostered in a calm and collected way. Instead, honest discussion is being suppressed in favor of certain scripted viewpoints. In all the activism we hear calls for a completely different kind of society, even one without police officers to uphold law and order. And what is going on? People are being manipulated. There's a lot of deception going on, and a lot of people willing to be deceived. It's getting harder and harder to trust the news media to give objective, unbiased information. Journalists have combined forces with agitators and activists. Video clips are edited to give a skewed picture of various events. Outrage is being cultivated and channeled in predetermined directions. And what should we think of this? Scripture should be our guide. It teaches us that alarming developments in the world are to be expected. When people read or hear the news, they sometimes wonder, is, is everyone going crazy or, or what? And you hear politicians and news commentators making pronouncements that make you shake your head. What are they thinking? It may seem like millions of people are losing their minds. And take care of that the same doesn't happen to you it's easy to be sucked along in the currents running through society and the only way to resist this consistently is to hold on to the unwavering standard of the word of God it teaches us about God himself and about how to live as his children in this world It teaches us to understand the basic flow of human history and the underlying divide between those who believe in God and those who choose not to. It teaches us also to look forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That will signal the end of time as we know it and the renewal of God's creation. And so we come to the theme for this afternoon, and that is, Don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. That's the theme. And don't expect me to list two or three points. Usually I do, but this time the theme is the important thing. The takeaway, as it were, uh, for the sermon. Don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is is coming, And so let's reflect on that. The Apostle Paul is teaching us to discern what's going on in society and to step back and look at the bigger picture. The members of the church in Thessalonica had welcomed the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. And truly that is good news, something that we also rejoice in. And they had embraced Paul's teaching, repenting of their sins and learning to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And they understood their calling to love God and to show this by living to please Him, leading holy lives while looking forward to being with Jesus Christ forever. And Paul encourages them in his first letter by writing about how the news of their faith in God has become known to people far from their city. He uses this fact to remind them in 1 Thessalonians 1, the verses 9 to 10, about how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They now live as believers who have an eternal future with God. And Paul wants them to continue faithfully in their lives as believers and in their expectation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Probably not long after writing that first letter, the apostle decides to write this congregation again. They need comfort and encouragement in the face of persecution. God will not forget what is happening. He sees the injustices that are being perpetrated against them. And the time will come, writes the apostle, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And he writes that those, that when the Lord Jesus comes in his glory, that he will consume them with the breath of his mouth and destroy them with the brightness of his coming. Justice will be done. Meanwhile, those believers evidently also need further instruction concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ in his glory. As we can see in, in verse 2 of our text, there were people, certain members of the congregation, who claimed that the day of Christ had come. And other church members who were gullible enough to believe that To believe that statement that the Lord had come, even though it conflicted with what Paul had previously taught the believers in Thessalonica. And so he wants to set the record straight. And the basic thrust of what he is saying in our text is that you shouldn't believe everything that you hear or read. Be discerning. Hang on to what you already know to be true. And remembering and reflecting on what you know to be true can help you to be discerning. Then you will not be, as the Apostle Paul puts it in verse 2, shaken in mind or troubled. Being shaken in mind refers to a severe disturbance in your thinking as if you're being shaken back and forth like a reed in the wind or or because of an earthquake and you're so disoriented that you don't know what to think. And being confused can result in a sense of alarm. And the apostle wants to prevent this in his readers so he reassures them. They should pay no attention to any message, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, he writes, as though the day of Christ had come. Now it seems that Paul had not been informed what the origin is of the idea that the Lord had already returned. In any case, he wants to make sure that his readers are not led astray by the suggestion that Paul or any of his companions could be the source. And the reference here to some kind of word or letter, as if from us, has generated some discussion among commentators. The consensus seems to be that the source of doctrinal confusion could be from someone claiming to be passing on a prophetic message. And another possibility is that confusion among the Thessalonians could have arisen because of a letter said to be from Paul. Whatever the case may be, none of this should carry any weight since it contradicts the apostolic teaching that they have already heard. The congregation in Thessalonica should simply hold on to those authoritative truths. And so Paul wants to remind them of what he has taught them before. And so the question is then, when will our Lord Jesus Christ return? Is it possible that the day of his coming has already begun? And the Apostle Paul explains that this is not the case. They shouldn't believe any announcement to the effect that the day has come. First, there will be the rebellion. There will be a falling away. And Paul isn't speaking in a vague general way about a rebellion. He's speaking about something specific and widespread. And the Greek word that he uses is expressed in the English term apostasy. It involves people turning their backs on God and on his claim on people's lives, denying his sovereignty. They reject his law, wanting to do things their own way. And their abandonment to the faith also involves turning against Jesus, the promised Messiah. Whoever shows hatred toward Jesus Christ will also be quick to persecute his followers. Jesus, in John 15, the verses 18 to 19, speaks of this. We read in John 15, the verses 18 to 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there's hatred in the world against believers. And there is rebellion, and even church members can fall away rebelling against God and becoming enemies of those who would be faithful to the word of God. Rebellion against God goes together with lawlessness. And we see that in verse three, where it speaks of that rebellion of that falling away. Rebellion. And Paul goes on to speak in that connection of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, being revealed at that time. Now, throughout the centuries since the time of our text, Antichrists have arisen. People who have targeted the Church of Jesus Christ. The world will hate followers of Jesus Christ, but the worst enemies of the church can come from within the church. And it's not surprising, therefore, that people have tried to identify this man of lawlessness as being a religious or political leader who has become the enemy of the church. Especially at the time of the Reformation, people pointed to the Pope. He not only embodied false doctrine, but also took an active role in using the power of the state to persecute believers. And it's not hard to see how they could conclude this. Paul speaks in uh, verse 4 about this man of lawlessness as, as taking in a prominent position in the temple of God. And doesn't the Pope regard himself as the earthly head of the church? The question is, however, whether all the things that Paul says concerning this man of lawlessness can consistently be applied to the Pope. After all, the description given in verse 4 speaks of this person as one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. This person will call people to turn away from whatever God or object they may worship to show absolute allegiance to himself. Paul is writing about the coming of the Antichrist. And his appearance on the stage of history will amount to a revelation of tremendous power throughout the world. And this will form a contrast to the expected revelation of Jesus Christ in his majesty. And so we see this man of lawlessness taking his seat in the temple of God. And what's, what's that all about? One commentator points to the stories of Antiochus and Pompey, who both entered the Jewish temple, and suggests that Paul, what Paul is saying it has to be taken metaphorically of the totalitarian claims of the rebel. In other words, to fit the bill of being the man of lawlessness, it would be sufficient for this person simply to strive to occupy the place of honor in the church and the world that only comes to God. And he will tell people what to believe and how to live. And Paul goes on to remind his readers that he has already told them about these things. The scene is set for this to happen. As he puts it in verse 7 For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The signs of the coming great rebellion against God were already there in his day. Antichrists have been arising in history since the time of the apostles. The apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verse 18, about it being the last hour. And, and there he says, as you've heard that, the Antichri- that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's how we know that it's the last hour. And the impression that we get from our text is that although many Antichrists have already come, there will be one who will be more awe-inspiring than all the others. And that day is closer now than ever before. But it hasn't come yet. Why not? He is being restrained until the time is ripe for his appearance. Now what or who is restraining the Antichrist from appearing? Although ultimately God is in control, he makes use of instruments. And Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about God himself restraining this Antichrist. In verse 7, we read about he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. But the second he, which is written in capital letters here, that's an interpretation of the translators. It doesn't have to be capital he. God is not taking himself out of the way. What Paul means is that the time will come when the appearing of this Antichrist will no longer be blocked. Whoever or whatever prevented this from happening will be taken out of the picture. And that will be when this lawless lawless one will be revealed. Commentators have offered various explanations about what is keeping the lawless one from appearing. How is this appearance being restrained? Some have pointed to the system of law and order in the Roman Empire of Paul's day. Although there was oppression, various rules and regulations also worked in favor of Christians. The apostle benefited from that himself in various ways as a Roman citizen. More broadly, however, one can point to systems of law and order throughout the history of the world as providing some measure of protection for Christians. And Paul explains in Romans 13 that there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. They've been put in place by God to restrain the forces of wickedness and to punish wrongdoers. And when police forces, as guardians of law and order, are set aside or deprived of their authority, anarchy is the result. Chaos then erupts and you see lawlessness instead of civilized behavior. Especially in the United States, we've been seeing deliberate attacks on the social order. And looking at the Canadian scene, things seem to be calmer. But let's count our blessings and and not take the current state of affairs for granted that there is law and order in our country. Things can deteriorate here too. When people are are, are unwilling to be guided by the Word and Spirit of God, they're susceptible to being influenced by other spirits. Haven't we seen a gradual shift in morals in our society during the past decades? Views concerning sex, marriage, abortion, and euthanasia have changed. And that reflects a change in people's beliefs and values. Without the unwavering standard of the word of God, they will tend to go along with the prevailing trends set by influential people in our society. And Paul makes it clear in verse 11 of our text that people are susceptible to delusions, to lies. As a result of God's righteous judgment, they can believe lies that will be detrimental to themselves, their countries, and even have a negative impact on the world. Think of the rise of communism in the early 20th century. The seed for this was sown with the publication of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Workers of the world unite. That was a key slogan. And what was the objective? Overthrow those who own shops and factories. Get rid of all private property and eliminate distinctions between classes of people. Let the government take total control over everything and manage the needs of society. Then everything will be great. And the first communist government was established in Russia in 1917. And within the space of decades, communism spread throughout Eastern Europe, into Asia, and eventually also to countries in Africa and South America. And the social changes led to the deaths of millions of people. It turned out that abolishing private property removed the incentive of people to work. Instead of leading to prosperity for all, communism led to a lot of poverty. And that's just one example of a delusion promising a glorious future that turned out to be a fiasco. And the results are with us to this day delusions will continue and even multiply in verses 9 to 10 of our text the apostle paul explains that the coming of the lawless one is according to the work of satan with all powers signs and lying and wonders And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Things will eventually come to a climax. And this coming Antichrist will be amazing. People will be astounded by what they see. However, it will amount to fakery instead of being a demonstration of truly divine power. So just think about that. According to the work of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Satan is a master of imitation. He can make people think that they're being confronted with something that's truly from God, but it isn't. Don't be impressed or intimidated by what appears to be of divine origin if it is linked with ungodly behavior. Any form of lawlessness is of the devil. And when the lawless one appears, many will be deceived. How will this be possible? It will be their own fault. Realize what Paul writes in verse 10, that they will believe what is false. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The only ones who will be fooled will be those who want to be fooled. Failing to love the truth, they will end up embracing lies and perish. And that will be how God punishes them. Paul portrays this grim reality in the final verses of our text. Look at the verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And may be thinking about this, you wonder, does this make God the author of sin? Not at all. What Paul is saying is that God is in control of all things. And he can reign in or unleash forces of wickedness in this world. Satan cannot do as he pleases. He can only operate within the limits set by God himself. And nevertheless, Satan and all those who follow him will be held responsible for what they do. They are not puppets and we can find an illustration of what Paul is getting at by turning back to Romans chapter 1 what do we read there we read in verse 18 Romans 1 verse 18 about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the apostle writes further that in verse 20 uh, that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood even from the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The Bible tells us that God is the creator of the world. He is the creator of heaven and earth. So many things and so many living beings in the world testify to his intelligence and creativity. And nevertheless, people in Paul's day, as well as now, have chosen to reject this. They persistently refuse to honor God or give thanks to him. Millions of people have embraced the teachings of Charles Darwin and believe the theory of evolution. And the impact of this theory in scientific circles has even led many Christians to conclude that we need to reinterpret the teachings of Scripture to accommodate the idea of theistic evolution, meaning that somehow God has used evolution to create the world that we see around us. And what happens when people decide to reject what God has revealed concerning himself and his work in this world? Their thinking becomes futile and their hearts are darkened. The apostle writes about people claiming to be wise who become fools and who end up worshipping things of this creation instead of God himself. The Bible teaches us that God created distinct human beings, male and female, And science confirms that there are genetic differences between males and females. And nevertheless, discussions during the past years about distinctions between sex and gender and gender identity and gender fluidity have led to a lot of confusion. We don't need to deny that since the fall into sin, genetic abnormalities can occur. However, it is a delusion to conclude on the basis of abnormalities that biological distinctions have become meaningless. What is going on is that people are trying to justify the further corruption of their thinking. Those who refuse to acknowledge God face the real possibility of being condemned by him to follow the desires of their own hearts. And since they don't want to be accountable to him, he reserves the right to give them up to dishonorable passions. The apostle speaks about that to vile passions. You see that reference in Romans 1, verse 26. And the outcome is what? The outcome is sexual depravity and other kinds of wicked behavior. And that same pattern is clear at the end of our text which links not believing the truth with having pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. Having pleasure in unrighteousness. And doesn't this make you think of the world around us today? Things seem to be going from bad to worse. And when you think about the revelation, the coming revelation of the man of lawlessness, you might be scared. And nevertheless, the point of our passage is that we need to be discerning. We need to see what's going on. And at the same time, we need to be of good courage. There is good news in what the apostle is telling us. When he speaks of the revelation of the man of sin, he also refers to him as the son of perdition. You could also render that as the the son of destruction. And what does it mean? It means that while it may be true that he will bring destruction with him, he himself will ultimately be destroyed. There are many delusions, many lies nowadays. And we see lawlessness and anarchy in society. And so what comfort is there for us in the face of such developments? It's the comfort of knowing that we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. He has come to set us free from all the power of the devil. He teaches us a new way of life. And he promises a glorious future for all who believe in him. In verse 8, we read that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. No matter how spectacular the appearance of this lawless one may be, his doom is certain. Our Savior is powerful enough to speak words that will lead to the complete destruction of all the power of the devil and the forces aligned with him. Nothing will be left of the power of the Antichrist when the real Christ appears in his glory. So to wrap things up, don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And the question that we face, beloved, as a congregation and also individually, is, are we ready for that great day? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ in his glory? He has said concerning himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only one who restores people to fellowship with God. And he can keep us safe from the deceptive power of the devil who is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus Christ guarantees a truly glorious future to his people. One that extends beyond this life. Be thankful, beloved, for the salvation that he brings to us. The salvation that is proclaimed to you from week to week. Rejoice in Jesus Christ and live for him. That's the way of truth. In a world full of deception. Believing in him. And responding to him as our Savior and Lord. That's the way of life everlasting. Amen.